Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we've, it's the last session in Hezekiah, and we've seen that Hezekiah is a really the story of revival. His life story is a story of revival. And uh, that revival is what? What is revival? What does it mean? It means believers encouraging other believers to start with. Sort of, yeah. It starts with, in, it with believers, it yeah. With believers. Who does the reviving? God does the reviving by his spirit. So you can't revive something that isn't alive. You can't revive a dead thing. A dead thing's dead. So revival is only for believers. Um, but once believers are revived, what happens? Yeah, why? Why is that? What does revival because do? they meet together daily. They share the word. They love the truth of the word of God and they sell their possessions and share it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I thought I recognised that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can't quote scripture. That's not the place for that. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's possible in our day? Yes. Okay, you think it is. Do you think it's necessary? Why is it necessary? Because the church as a whole in the West doesn't seem to be taking uh, the word of God so seriously as right, it should be. Right, right. And living it out as So it you're saying that actually crucial to revival is the word of God? Yes. Why? Because God's power is living his Yeah, word. because his power is in his word. And how will you know that it's God at work if the, if the word is not included? Mm. Um, that's really the thing. Um, yeah. Um, wh what's happened in the church then in the West, could you say? I mean, what had happened in Hezekiah's day, first of all? They were worshipping Baal before he came. They were? Okay, why were they doing that? And you know better, I suppose. Yeah, why not, though? There's a, there's a reason, a specific reason in those chapters why they weren't worshipping God. I mean, they obviously didn't mind, but, but what, what had caused them not to worship God? They, they didn't have a temple. Yeah, they because Ammon, Hezekiah's father, had closed the doors of the temple. It specifically says he closed the doors. So in our day, who has closed the doors? Has the church closed the doors? Have, the, have, have a faction within the church, or has the church been deceived into closing the doors? And if they have, what does that look like? Because we're talking about Hezekiah. We're talking about him leaving a legacy, and he did. He left a legacy because he opened the doors. So we're going to talk a bit about what he did to open the doors and how that happened. But really, if we want to bring that into our time and say we need revival, we must need revival for the same reason, because somewhere along the line, someone has closed the doors. So how has that happened? See what I mean? Because if you don't recognise it, if you don't see it when you're, when you're out wherever you are, when you're worshipping in your church, when you're going out in fellowships, if you don't see whether a door is open or closed, then you won't know whether they need revival, whether they don't, whether you need to encourage in what way you need to do that. You need to be able to see what's going on. So It's got to be the word of God, hasn't it? Right. To do with that. Right. We're not taking that as... It's not being preached very yeah. often in many churches. So how has, how has the door of the church been closed? Well, three, three reasons, I think. One secularism, uh, the other one is uh, the threat of Islam, Okay. Okay. Yes. Probably yes. Probably more. Yeah. What do you mean by liberalism exactly? Neoliberalism. Yes. What do you mean by that? Liberalism, where 
Right, okay, yeah, okay. Undermining the word of God. Okay, and everything's allowed. Yes. Yes, okay, yeah, okay. Yes, and that's a really big one, I think, that probably the two together are the biggest two. Um, and I was going to say, I went to something at this church in Wimbledon, Hillside Church, because I've been going there, and uh, they had a man called Patrick Reagan uh, come to speak, and he um, headed up a very large charity, the initials of which I can't remember, um, and he went all over the place. He had the ear of of the Prime Minister and politicians, and he went to Africa and all over the world. Christian, um, obviously a genuine man, um, and he stopped all of that and decided he, they would start another charity, he and his wife together, and it's called Kintsugi. Have you heard of it, Kintsugi? Kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, is a way of um, Japanese, it's a Japanese uh, pottery thing, and they take broken pots, and they fill the cracks with gold. So what they're saying is that the pot is more beautiful after it's broken and filled with gold than it was before. So they've taken that name to, for their charity, and they're saying they're reaching out to uh, mentally uh, challenged people, to people with depression, to people with uh, all sorts of issues, anxiety and those things, in order to uh, minister to them and get them to... <coughs> Um, understand there's life out of, out of the brokenness. And he came with his wife and their, uh, this whole uh, people who work with him and he gave a really good presentation and she sang and it was all really good and, but I think I, probably there were two verses from scripture at all in the whole thing and by the end of it I knew there was something not quite right but I didn't know what it was because it was all good it was all focused on people being encouraged not being depressed, helping them out of their, their difficulty. Uh, and he's written a book called Honesty Over Silence. He's written several books, but this is his latest one, Honesty Over Silence. And at the end of it, all I could when I, I came out and walked home, I thought, you know, that was all really good, but it was all about people and nothing about God. And what he was saying was that we can together bring people out of this loneliness, out of this depression, out of this thing. We can make a difference. And of course I believe that, but only God can cure that. And that was missing. It's the social gospel, isn't it? It is a social gospel, which is what you're talking about. It's all of this humanistic thinking. That, and if we can make their human conditions better, if we can make them emotionally stronger, if we can do that, we can save people. But without the gospel. And I'm sure that I, I'm not, you know, I, I haven't spent more than one evening with them. So I'm not totally, you know, rubbishing their ministry. But what I would say is that that is infiltrating the church and actually that has closed the doors. Because as soon as you don't speak the gospel, as soon as you start to talk about the fact that we can help each other out of these things, then you are closing the need, removing the need for Christ. And as soon as you remove the need for Christ, no one can get in. So, uh, I suppose it's because it's fresh in my mind from Sunday, and um, yeah, it was really sad actually, because they were obviously genuine, you know, they really had a heart for this, they had difficult family life, very difficult things happened to them, um, and they were genuine, and they obviously, they felt called by God to do this, so it was, you couldn't have gone to them and said, well, you're deceiving, mm. but nonetheless, 
you know, it. What did your vicar think? I don't know. I haven't had a chance to speak to him actually. So it's be interesting. Thank you, Carol. Sorry. <laughs> I'll try not to say any, you know, too much of this, but. But it is, it's important, isn't it, that we understand that. You know, because that's the prevailing culture, and that is the prevailing culture in London. The big churches in London are all about the social gospel. They are all about helping people. And it's really hard to criticise that, because why would you not want to help people? So um, that's why I think it's important. It's important for us to be able to know, you know, that where the doors are closing and where they're opening. You said just yeah, I think the liberalism, the neoliberalism that um, yeah. mm. Simon mentioned, I think that's another thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in his talk, he said, he said something about, I don't know if you're, you or your husband or wife or your partner, I don't know what they think about this. Like, you know, oh, Lord, no, that was right at the beginning. You know, I just thought, oh, this is going to go downhill. So, and, and again, you know, He's speaking to a lot of non-believers, so it's not easy. Do think it's all about helping people. Of course, yeah, and that's yeah. not a bad motive. It's good, but if but we have to see that that's closing the door. That's all I'm saying. We don't necessarily have to bash them over the head with it, but we have to know what to do about that. And um, and when you put that together with the apathy in parts of the church with small congregations that really, you know, are not bothered really about going out, doing anything. They just want to go to church on a Sunday. When you add everything together, you have this, this closed door, this closed door. Who wants to join a church of six people who really aren't bothered, not very kind during the week? Who wants to go and join that church? You know. And how can a church help you that is so set on human help on social justice that actually after a while you come away still starving and still thirsty because you haven't had God meet your needs you know um, so um, we need revival in the church uh, the reason I said all of that you probably think it took a long time to say that but I, th I believe that the people who did that were Christians I believe that they really were Christians they were believers so they weren't um, deliberately uh, deceiving, but the deception was there nonetheless. Yes. So that's why it's so important for us. It's so important for us to know what that is and, and to cry out for revival. So when revival comes, what does it look like? Pure, it's holy. Yeah, it's pure and it's holy, yeah. Mm. It's repentance. Yeah, repentance. Who brings it? Yeah, God, by his spirit. So it comes by his spirit. So now that's another thing. If it, we're crying, we want repentance. That's what they had in Pentecost. At Pentecost, they had revival. The people, they were, these were the people of God. They were the people of God who were called back to God. And, and these were people who had crucified Messiah. So they, I mean, they had done the... For them, the most terrible thing, you can't even imagine that God would call them back, but he called them back, and he called them. And when Peter preached his sermon, what did he say? Repent, and be repent, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for your sins to be forgiven. So I don't think, Pente I mean, Pentecost obviously was the start of the church, but it was the revival of the people of God, because they were the people of God. They were Israel. 
And so as soon as you say that Pentecost is the start of a new thing, although it is, you're discounting, you're putting a block between what he had done, God had done before and what he did after Pentecost. But actually, Pentecost is in the middle of God's work with humanity because the feasts picture his work, don't they? Mm -hmm. So you've got all the feasts that led up to Pentecost, then Pentecost, and then we've got the feasts still to come. Do you know the, you know the feasts, right? Yeah, you do. So Pentecost isn't a, it is a new work of God in that the Gentiles were allowed in, but it was only part of the work of God. So it was the reviving of his people. And that reviving brought about the Gentiles being able to come in. So it brought about the fact that you and I are now in the body of Christ. Um, so that's what I think I said last time, that you can plot revivals through scripture and then down, obviously, through the human history since Christ. Um, but Pentecost is the, the last one. Well, I think he, even in Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, he was praying for their revival. So how long after Christ's death was the letter to the Hebrews written? Can you remember? Roughly? 50, 50, 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. And, and whoever wrote that letter, some say Paul, some say other people, but whoever wrote that letter was writing to a church that was already turning to apathy, being afraid, moving away, closing the doors. It was already closing the doors to the church. And, and the writer has to say to them, um, you know, come back, come back. So um, what is the answer? Well, the answer is, you see, what had caused them to, to move away from the gospel? What had caused them to lose their passion, which they, they had in Hebrews? If you read um, Hebrews 5, I think it is, he says, you're in need of, of solid food, but you're, you're, I can only give you milk. And in Hebrews 12, um, let's go to Hebrews 12, he says, um, I can't remember exactly, let me just get there. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Um, yeah, he says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So already there is this sense that it, individually and corporately they were already stumbling. They were already stumbling. And now they're stumbling because of persecution because they're being persecuted by their own people um, and so they're becoming afraid and... Um, and it's easier for them to hide and go back to Judaism than it is to continue to um, be a Christian. So that's the temptation for them. Um, I've got some Old Testament um, references, which I'll just give you, that a call out for God to revive the people. Psalm 85, verse 6. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. Psalm 80, verse 18 and Isaiah 57, verse 15. Throughout the Bible, God's people call to God for revival. But you said, Eve, how, what do we do? Well, the first thing that we have to do is to know that we need it. Well, I know. Yeah, we have to know that we need it. What's the second thing? The second thing is we have to ask God for it because we can't bring revival. See, that's the thing too. We can't bring about a change in people's hearts. Hezekiah opened the doors to the temple and he made it possible for people to come in. So he was, if you like, standing at the front preaching a gospel, preaching the gospel. He was, making, he was opening the doors, bringing them in, cleaning up the seats, you know, making everything right that he could. But he couldn't change their heart. Only God can do that. 
And, and God did do that because God honoured his work and his prayer. So the first thing is to know that you need it and the second thing is to pray to God for it. And to understand that you can't do it. You just can't do it. And actually, when you look in the New Testament, Paul was writing, he was praying for churches. He was praying the sorts of prayers that we need to pray for one another. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, somebody read Ephesians 1, verse 16 to 20, uh, please. Ephesians 1, 16 to 20. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Thank you. So, Paul's praying for believers. See, this is the amazing thing. He's praying for believers, and these believers are doing quite well, actually. They're not... They're not um, you know, as far as we can see from this letter, they're not acting terribly immorally, they're not, they're, they're not, you know, moving away terribly from the gospel, but he prays this prayer for them. So why is that? Why does he pray? And what does he pray? What does he pray for them? To know God more. Yeah, to know God more. And, and how does he phrase it? Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Yeah, that you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Um, yeah, that may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What does the word knowledge mean? Knowing personally, by yeah. experience. True knowledge, it actually means true knowledge by experience. So that he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of him. So where are you going to get true knowledge of him? Yeah, in the Word, but through the Spirit. See, that's what Paul's saying. He's writing the Word to them. That's not the Word for them. The Word for them is the Old Testament. So th that's new. But he's saying to them that he's praying that they would have this true knowledge of God. So think about revival then, which is our subject. How is revival going to happen? I mean, when we are praying, what are we going to pray for? And you know the answer because it's right here. It's just so, you know, nobody likes to say it because it's obviously so simple. But we need to be praying for each other that we have this spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of him. We have to pray that for ourselves individually and for us collectively so that, he says, so that if you have this true knowledge of him in this, uh, and wisdom, there's a, a result of, it, of that so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What's the hope of his calling? What's the hope of our calling? What is the hope of the calling of God? Knowing him better. Yeah, knowing him better. On the way. What's Sorry, eternal, life. eternal life. Eternal life in Christ. And heaven is the hope, isn't it? Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul will say to the Philippians. So that we don't really belong here. We belong there. And the hope is, the confident expectation is, that we will be there with him. And when we get there, what will we be like? 
we'll be like him. We'll be fit for the country that we're going to live in. So this place, where we are now, what's this for? Preparation. Yeah, preparation, but in what way? Because I think sometimes, you know, it's called a training ground, it's called all these other things. It's where we train to be Christians, and so people strive harder and harder and harder to live the Christian life. And like I said last week, no one can live the Christian life except Christ. So what is this? If you had to liken it to something that we know, this earth and heaven, so heaven is our home, that's where we belong. We're not there yet, so, but we know we're going there. So what have we been left here to do? Yeah, preach the gospel, but with word and with deed. And so what are our actual actions? What are we called to do in scripture? You won't get it. It's just it came to me the other day, so I'm going to tell you. You know, you take your kids to the swimming pool and you go into one side of the changing room, right? And you take the, well, you don't know, but I've been taking my grandchildren to swimming lessons. So you take them in, it's a big kerfuffle. They've got to get their clothes off, get them in the locker, put their swimsuits on and then go for the, go for the pool, right? That's what this, this world is. It's the changing room. What does Paul say? Lay aside the old man, put on the new. Doesn't he say that? Twice he says it in Ephesians and Colossians. Lay aside the old you and put on the new. Think about it as a suit of clothes. Think about it as a new suit that you need in a new place. That's what we're here to do. And the changing is the witness. Isn't it? That's the witness. So when my grandkids come out of the door of the changing room and they've got their swimsuits on and they look really cute, they do, they get out there, they look like they're ready for the pool. <coughs> they are ready for the pool. They're ready to be where they are. Yeah. And that's what this life is about. It's about us taking off the old and putting on the new so that when we get there, we're ready. We're ready to do it. Can I just say something? You spoke earlier about the church and, and revival and how we recognise what is not yeah. really um, what, where we should be. Yeah. I mean, often the church forgets that we're not of this world. Yes, exactly. And can't be too much like the world. Exactly. Into yeah. Because social justice is a wonderful cause. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the biggest uh, sins of life have, have, have been cured by Christians. Slavery, for example. All of that work done by Wilberforce and his friends, they were Christians. They did it for Christ. But they didn't forget the gospel in the, in the doing of it. And it was all for Christ. So that's what we've forgotten the gospel in it. We've forgotten that it's all about God. Yes. And we just, it's all about people. Sometimes I've had this, oh sorry. Go on, go on. Um, sometimes I've had this feeling that we're in a collecting room. Yeah. Being a horsey person. Yeah. You know, you get into a collecting room before you run the race. Right. Before you right. go off to mm. compete. Mm. Mm. Um, we are like that, Carrie, you're yeah. right. And we're parading around yeah. and we look we're really good. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Eve, what were you going to say? I, I thought that you had given the suggestion from time to time that we have a job to do. Yeah, we do. And that we will be here until we've completed it. Mm -hmm. And also, is it not to do with seeking first the kingdom? Definitely. And all these things. Because if I concentrate on goodness, I could shape up and this, that, and the other direction. Yeah. I don't think it really yeah. does it. No. So, so when I say change your clothes, what do I mean? Because that's really good. That's exactly where we're going with it. What does it mean when you change your clothes? What does that look like? Does, look yeah, but it doesn't look like you trying to be 
trying to fix things. It's not like you changing this sleeve, right, this sleeve looks bad to me, I need to get rid of this sleeve, and then I need to find another sleeve to put that on. And You know, it's not that. It's you putting on something that's tailor-made for you, and it's just you laying aside that stuff. And it's, a, it's a, almost a, it's a one gesture. It's understanding, I can't live the Christian life, only Christ can live it in me. I can't do it. I can't strive to do it. You know, for years I prayed, Lord God, please make me more patient. I was the most impatient driver you have ever met in your life. And living in Tokyo, where traffic is beyond reason, you cannot be impatient. But I was. I can remember screaming in the car. Screaming. Because I was so frustrated that I wasn't, we weren't moving. And praying and praying and praying. You know, Lord, please make me more patient. And in the end, God said, and actually it's not your patience that's the worst thing. It's not the patience that I want to deal with. We'll get to that later. There's something else underneath there. So it was really an eye opener to me. I could only see what I could see, but God can see the whole. And so he's not wanting me just to deal with bits and pieces. He wants to change the whole thing. And, uh, you know, you, you could tell the same story in different ways. You'd have the same, you'd have the same testimony. But what I'm trying to get to is the fact that we can recognize that we need revival. We can see that the church is going the wrong way. We can see that we have to do certain things and pray for certain things. But it all comes back to Paul's prayer that we would have a, knowledge, a revelation, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I mean, you know, you've been coming here, lots of you have been coming 10 years. I don't think I've said anything different in all that time. I think it's been the same. And sometimes I think it can't be that, Lord. It can't be so simple. There's got to be something else. But it is that simple. It's coming into the true knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has promised to do and understanding it's all his grace and none of my work. It was all his grace before and it's going to be all his grace now. And I, my work is to surrender to him. That's what I do. I say, I can't do revival, only you can do it. I can't change my heart, only you can do it. I can't make myself want to do these things, only you can do it. But it's the prayer that he would. And that's the seeking. That's me saying, I can't do it, Lord, but I want you to. Um, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, two prayers in Ephesians, and both of them are about the same thing. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Why is it that Paul wants you to know this love of Christ? Why does he want you to be rooted and grounded? Why does he want Christ to dwell in your heart through faith? Um, why does he want, um, where is it that he talks about um, uh, the surpassing knowledge? Why does he want you to, uh, to know this love of Christ which surpasses knowledge? All so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Why? Because the more you are full of God, the more you are able to live for him. And, and you can't fill yourself with God. <laughs> How can you? You can't. You can't say, right, I'm, I'm going to do this today and I'm going to be filled up with God. 
All you can do is say, I know that I'm not. So please fill me. So his prayer, both prayers, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, they are for the same thing. They're that we, that we would come into a true knowledge of who God is, all that he's promised us, all that he will do, so that we will just be blown away by this God. He <coughs> promises all this, that we will say, I surrender, I surrender to this God, to this God. And, and when you do, and he fills you up, what will happen? <coughs> What will you find happening? Tangible results of the filling up. Yeah. In what way? <coughs> How? Yeah. But, yeah. So what will you find? Real practical things. What will you find? Think about why you're here. Why have you been left here? Eve said it. We're to witness to him. That's how. So how will we find that being filled up, being revived, being stoked up, the fire in us, what will that result in? Yeah, well, first of all, it will <coughs> result in you being unafraid to talk about Jesus because he will just spill out of your mouth. Exactly. Acts 4. That's exactly it. No, I didn't say Acts 4. Oh, I said spot on. Oh, spot on. <laughs> I thought you said apostles, and I thought you were saying about Acts 4. Eve, you see, I, I was crediting you with great Bible knowledge. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. That's exactly how it is. You get a, a real courage and a boldness in talking about Jesus, and it's not difficult. Um, it's just, yeah, exactly. So that's the first thing. You're giving a you're given a boldness about speaking, or you feel a boldness. You're not afraid. What's another thing? Another way that um, you could see. The revival in you. I'm trying hard to find my notes to see where the next thing is, but yeah, what else? Being full of joy. Yeah, full of joy. Yeah, full of joy. A big one, though. Go ahead, Rich. I think your reactions around people in terms of how you would have responded before. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm going to give that a whole title. What would you call that? I mean, actually, I think we've said the word before. We talked about purity, we and so being like Christ, we're able to handle relationships and responses much better than we could have done before because he is now responding more through us. And even that purity I would put under the banner of holiness. We become holy because he is holy, and the more he takes up of us, the more holy we become. And we didn't do it. You know, we didn't do it. There wasn't a rule book that we followed. There wasn't something we had, not some list of things we had to do. It just happened because we prayed for more of God. More of God. Um, okay. Um, so revival then. Revival uh, that we talk about when we talk about revival. Uh, what would we mean by that? Do we mean the individual filling up by each individual Christian uh, coming to know God more, understanding more? Or is it bigger than that? It's bigger than that. So it's God doing in the corporate sense what he's always doing individually. So we're not asking God for anything different. What we're saying is we want to come as a body now, as a fellowship, as a group, as a church. We want to pray for revival because we see that it's necessary and because we want to be filled up to all the fullness of God and we want to be able to witness to him. 
and we want to be holy. Um, and think about Hezekiah. Isn't that why he started? He said at the end of some of those chapters in Hezekiah, I think it's chapter 30 or 31, it says the people gave willingly to the temple. They brought their sacrifices. They willingly gave. That's just surrender. It's the willing giving of themselves to God. Um, it was physical things they were giving, so they were bringing sacrifices and offerings. We're giving our souls to God. We're giving him our soul and we're saying, Lord God, you, only you can change this. But what we're deciding to do is to do it as a whole. That's what Hezekiah instituted, a whole nation revival. That's what Pentecost was. It was 3,000 people in one day. It was a, just a whole, and those 3,000 went out and made more thousands yes. uh, because they were revived. Um, I was thinking about Job, you know, there's so many instances through scripture of these revivals. And I was thinking about Job and thinking, was his story the story of revival? And it was individual revival for him. Um, how's Job described in the beginning of the book? There was no one else like him. Yeah, no one else like him. He was the most righteous man in the East, the most righteous. And then he comes into this calamitous thing, that, these things that happen to him. And he still, main, he still holds his righteousness all the way through the, the um, book. And he, he cries out to God, questions God, complains to God, but he still hangs on to his faith. But the interesting thing about Job is that when he sees God, when he, he gets the opportunity to present his case to God, what does he say? Right at the end of the book, uh, about Job 42, 39... 40, 41, somewhere around there. He says, my, eyes, uh, my ears had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. Because what Job saw was all his goodness, all his righteousness, all his human goodness was nothing compared to God. And, and that's a lesson for us. I mean, all his suffering, everything else, I mean, there's so many lessons in Job, but one of the, the ones is that it's nothing about us, the most righteous man in all of the world at that time came before God with all his, all his complaints and all his questions and all the why and how did that happen to me and everything else and he found nothing he could say in front of a God who was totally other, totally different. And so Job was revived actually. He was revived because he understood finally that he was powerless without God. He couldn't do anything about his situation without God. And that's what revival is. It's understanding that we can, have, we can have worship events and we can have conferences and we can, we can you know, do gospel outreach and we can do all of it, but it is nothing if God doesn't show up. It's nothing if God doesn't show up. And God only shows up where people want to honour him. So all of the prayers, all of the stuff of, of Christian, Christian work or whatever, if it is not with the intention of give me more of you, Lord, give me more of you, let me, let me live for your glory, let me honour you, let us as a, as a body live for your glory. If that is not our intention, God will not bring revival and only he can bring revival. Now that's really hard because I don't know about you, but it's really hard to have pure motives. I'm not sure I've got any pure motives. Because we're so bound up in our own thinking. 
So only God can give us the pure motives and only God can take what we offer and make it something good. So all that we can do is bring what we have and say, okay, here it is. Here it is. I can't go anywhere without you and I don't want to go anywhere without you. I want you to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything I can ask or think. I want you to take whatever I have, this tiny offering, and make it something usable for your glory. And, and so what will it take for that to happen in us? Everyone has this faith in him, purifies himself, yeah. just as he is pure. Yeah, yeah. Is that Titus or Timothy? That's 1 John. Oh, 1 John, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, purifies himself, thank you, yeah. That's it, Yeah. So, um, so all of that to say, the only thing that will bring revival in our day is our understanding that we are lost without God. If he doesn't do it, we can't do it. We just can't do it. So we need a revelation. We need a revelation. That's what Paul prayed, that we would have a spirit of revelation and knowledge of him, wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And we need to persevere until we get it. You know, and that's, again, not something I'm good at. Perseverance is not one of my strong points. You know, I'm like, okay, I prayed. Where is it? You know, and that's how the church is. And that's why, how we are as a, as a human race. Because everything is now instant. So it's harder and harder and harder to persevere. Because all of our culture is pulling us the other way. I was listening to a TED talk the other day, just a snippet of one. And there was someone on there talking about the brain and what happens when we use our mobile phones or iPads. Or, uh, and she was saying that we talk about multitasking, but the brain, it's impossible for the brain to multitask. All that happens is that your brain switches from one thing to another thing. It doesn't do five things at once. It does one thing and switches quickly to the next thing and switches quickly to the next thing. And what that does is it, it starts to destroy the connecting uh, neurons, neutrons, whatever they're called, in your brain. And so you actually damage your brain by multitasking, what we call multitasking. Yes. <laughs> we definitely... <laughs> I can't answer that, Brian. That is just... I mean, do you need the Lord or what? I cannot answer it. <laughs> so... Um, we need this understanding that we need to persevere, we need to keep going, we need to keep praying. And the only way we're going to do that is how? What would make you do that? What would make me do that? The Spirit of God stirs you up. Yes, yes, stirs you up. But what would be your thinking? Part of the fellowship, part of the body. Yes, part of the body, part of the fellowship. But why would you start to think like that? Because you love God more than anything else. Because you love God more than anything else. Yeah, he's all we have. Because actually, in a way, you've seen God. You've seen him for who he is. See, when I said about Job, he said, I've heard about you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. Interesting, because you can read the Bible, and you've all yeah. the experience, and it just doesn't go in. It. Yeah. You just don't feel that God is yeah. speaking to you. And other times, it's so real, yeah. and so amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, there's a big difference. Yeah, there is. And the difference is, I think, the understanding that 
reading the Bible is not it. You know, we can, we can know the word, we can read it, we can study it, we can even talk about it to each other. But the word is just the path to God. It's just the way to God. It's an extension of him. And so he's just drawing us in and drawing us in and drawing us in. But we don't, I'm not content with this. I mean, this is great. I love it. I've always loved the word of God. But that's not enough for me. I want the God who is the word. I don't want just the word. And that's what happens when you see God, when you actually see him with the eyes of your faith. You, you start to see there's someone I really want more than anything else. And because he is so wonderful, you seek after him and you keep going because you know he's there and you want him and nothing is going to stop you getting to him. Now the problem for us is what? Well, one of the many problems for us is that we're human and we're easily distracted. And perseverance, I said it's not one of my good things. I don't think it's a good thing for anybody. Not real perseverance, not running hard after God. So we have to trust even that to God. We have to, yeah, go ahead. Can I just say something? This reading of the Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, mm. you come across something that's intriguing. Well, I got to a stage where I thought, this is all about me. Mm. And so what I found is really helpful is, oh, that's amazing. Now I pray for everyone. Right. Else, specific people or situations. Yeah. yeah. And that somehow really thrown it out there. Mm as opposed to just sitting there and feasting away on my own yeah. in the morning. Yeah. I know that probably sounds... No, it bizarre. doesn't. It doesn't. It, I think it's the next stage, Eve. It's another stage, another climate, another, yeah. another step forward, another something. It's, you know, Paul talks about, uh, in a totally different context, he says, keep, uh, keep the standard that you've already attained, keep the maturity that you've already attained. So he's assuming that we do grow in our Christian life and we don't stay babies forever. We do grow up. And so, you know, he's saying that it's not wrong to have grown up. That's a good thing, to turn that into a prayer for other people. But I, you know, what I wanted to look at tonight was just this idea that if we have to see God, how do we see him through the word? Because that's what we have. We have the word and we have the spirit who ministers that word to us. I mean, we can see God in creation. We can, we can know he exists because he says that he puts knowledge of himself in us in Romans chapter 1. We know that Jesus came, so we know, we have seen, if you like, we can see Jesus. But how do we see him in the word? Because this is what you and I have. And if I have to see God to have the eyes of my heart enlightened, if I have to really see him, how can I see him as he is in scripture? So I wanted to look at Isaiah because Isaiah chapter 6 talks about Isaiah seeing God. And I want to talk about what he actually saw um, Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 4, um, he begins, you know these verses, he begins with, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm just talking while I get there, <laughs> hold on. Um, sorry, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. 
So Isaiah actually saw the throne room of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can see that same thing that Isaiah, Isaiah saw. He saw God high and lifted up. John chapter 12, I think it is, will tell us that when Isaiah saw God, he saw Jesus. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And so, um, so uh, we can't see uh, God in the same way. But now, using the eyes of our faith, because we have the Holy Spirit within us, what can we see that Isaiah saw that, uh, yeah, what can we see? What does Isaiah see, actually? First of all, what does he see? Yeah, I, yeah, he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. So just in that description, you won't get it because it's a convoluted thing, but what Isaiah sees first is that God is alive. He is alive. He is real. He is alive. He's not some kind of idea... He's not some uh, mirage. It's not, he's not uh, a made-up being. He's not a religious idol. He's not a statue. He is alive. And he has, we, can, we know that because we know Jesus who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is alive and he has always been alive and he will be alive forevermore. There is no forevermore with God because there is no forever. It is always now with God. He was there before the beginning and he will be there after the end. Genesis 1 opens up with, in the beginning, God. He was there at the beginning of our time and he will be there long after our time finishes. That's who our God is. He's alive. So when we talk to him and when we think about him, what, what do you think we're supposed to be thinking as we do that? I know you know this stuff, you know. I know you know it. But we're talking to a living God, a God who's alive, a God who, knew, who knows everything and who's outside of our time and who will never cease to be and who has given us never ceasing to be. We are eternal because he's eternal. We live outside of time in a way. Spiritually, we're outside of time. Think about that. Think about this God that we are worshipping and serving and, and we're, we're trying to surrender to because we know we want to seek him. Well, that's who he says he is. He says, I'm eternal. I'm, I'm before everything and after everything. In a hundred years, none of us will be alive. None of us. Maybe even 50. We won't be alive. That's a scary thought. Well, we will be alive. You know what I mean, physically. But God will be alive. He'll be alive. We're alive because we'll be with him and in him. But he will be alive. He is the Alpha and the Omega. What's the second thing that, God, that Isaiah saw? And don't rush through these, really. I know 8 o'clock, everyone's getting a bit tired, but think about them. Yeah, think about God, though. What does he see about God? Yeah, he's high and lifted up. What do you think he's saying? He's on a throne, so what does that mean? He's the king. He's the sovereign. He is omnipotent God. There is nothing that he can't do and nothing that can stop his plans. He reigns. He rules. He's on a throne. He is in charge. Nothing can stand before him. Um, he's the final authority on everything. He has control and he does what he wants to do. Isaiah 46 verse 10, I am the Lord and there is no other. And uh, Daniel chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar, who's come through his, his time of uh, seven years when he was made to eat the grass and all sorts of things. Uh, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, well, Daniel, sorry, 
Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Um, Daniel 4, 35. All the well, I'm going to go to 34, but I, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is Nebuchadnezzar. He saw God. With his, with his eyes of faith, he saw God. He understood something about God. He had a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the true knowledge of him. He understood who God is. And because he understood, he could say that God, nothing can stand against him. So I, we're thinking about why should we seek after this God? Why should you seek this God? Why would you want to change your clothes? Why would you want to surrender? Really, seriously, ask yourself, why? And, and ask yourself, if you're not surrendering, why am I not surrendering? Because this is who God is. And if I'm not surrendering, why not? What is it that's, that I don't understand about this? This is who God is. And Nebuchadnezzar says, at the end of that period, I raised my eyes toward heaven. He raised his eyes, and then his reason returned to him. It's in that order. I raised my eyes toward heaven and, th and my reason returned to me. And I praised the God who did this. So he's God. No one can stop his plans. He does what he likes. He raises up kings. He deposes them. He puts to death people. Hmm? Your is dead. Oh. No, it isn't. It's just the microphone. Oh. Yeah, I know. I was just joking. <laughs> My battery hasn't stopped. But. Have you got the lower set? Yes. Well, I've got an old set, but hopefully they will work. Mm. Hey. Okay. Is that working? There you go. Well, I'll see how long this one lasts. Okay, you know, whenever I talk about God this way, I really look out and I see bored faces. Why? Because we're intently listening. Are you intently listening? Really, because, you know, I just think to myself, I don't know. We know this stuff so well. We know that this is who God is. And sometimes it stops moving us. And it stops meaning anything. And we start to, yeah, I know that. I know he's omnipotent God. I know he's eternal. I know he's outside of time. But what does that mean, actually? What does that mean to us? We're in him and he's in us. This all-powerful God, this sovereign ruler of all things, this one who can stop kings and start kings, who can wipe out nations with one word of his mouth, who can just do anything he likes. This God is the God who calls us to him. And if we're not coming, it's because we don't believe this. Or we haven't seen him for ourselves. You've just heard about him from somebody else, and you've heard it so many times that you just can't bear to hear it anymore. 
That's the church. The church is bored. The church is bored with God, bored with these things about God, and it wants, you know, whistles and ba bells and bangs and gold dust, and it wants people falling over in the street, and it wants yeah. things it can see with its physical eyes. Mm. It's an interesting question because I heard something uh, the other day. I lived in a ministry in London. She was working with prostitutes, and <coughs> many of them were coming to Christ. Mm. They were, they really, their lives were transformed. But then they would go back on the streets. Mm. So what happened? You know, they, they came out of terrible situations, set free from drugs and alcohol, and and then, and then they turned their backs on all the fantastic things that God had done for them by His Spirit, and go back to their old lives. Mm. And and the question was, why? Mm. Why does that happen? Put the roots down. Yeah, because they probably weren't discipled. They were evangelized and not discipled. Yeah. And that's the, that's the bottom line. Unless we teach ourselves these things, we're not going to stay. I mean, how many years have you been doing Bible study? Long time. And we're still prone to it. I've heard that before. Yes. And you switch off. Yes. But it's... It, it, it is. It, it, yes. We need Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, I was feeling a little bit hopeless about a certain church situation. You know, just, oh, Lord, not another, please. And then I come here and, you know, almighty God? <laughs> you know, who am I talking about? Who am I talking Yeah, that's it. That's it. And if we don't give ourselves this, no one's going to give it to us because you're not going to walk into lots of fellowships where this is happening. You're going to walk into fellowships where, with the best intentions, the focus is on evangelism, get new believers, get new believers, get new believers, and the discipleship and the growing in the Lord and maturing and all of that is just waylaid. And, and what happens is you and I get apathetic. We do. I mean, I can't go on holiday for two weeks without losing my grip. Because, because I need to do this. I need to remind myself that this is who God is and that I belong to him. So um, Isaiah sees God, he's alive, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent. What else does he see about God? So find something in here that he sees about God, something wonderful. What, what does he see about God? Yes, he, he sees glory. He sees beauty. He sees majesty about God. He sees that God is fantastic and God is fabulous and he's, he's just more than Isaiah even can explain. He can't even describe God. All he can say is the train of his robe filled the temple. He can't even describe it. He can't describe God's, you know, his appearance beyond the train of his robe because it's too beautiful for him. He doesn't have words to describe it. He doesn't have words. He's majestic and awesome and beautiful and, yeah, fabulous. And I want to see God like Isaiah saw God. I do. I don't see him like that. I want to see him like that. I want to train my eyes to see God like that. The eyes of my faith. Um, and he sees that God is worshipped because of that. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holiness is total otherness. He is outside of our thinking and outside of our human understanding. He is beyond words for us. If God didn't give us the words, we would not know how to describe him because he is totally other. So he sees that God is alive, that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, that he is beautiful. What else does he see? What does that bring about in Isaiah? He sees himself. Yeah, he sees himself. No, it isn't. In Isaiah's a prophet. He's using his mouth to talk about God. And that's the one thing he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a people, amongst a people of unclean lips. So the, ver- the best thing that he can think of about himself, he's now calling unclean. In the sight of this God... That's the thing. All his righteousness is like filthy rags. Job, when he gets to see God, he's got nothing to say even though he's hung on to his faith, even though he's, he's said some incredible things about God on his journey through. He still has nothing to say in front of this God who appears to him. Mm. And so Isaiah uh, worships, actually. That understanding that he is a man of unclean lips is worship, isn't it? It's like me saying, I see you for who you are, and I see myself for who I am, and all I can do is fall down in front of you. Mm. And that's worship. Mm. It's, you know, and, and the thought, think about it, God is beyond our thinking. It's, we can't think about it, actually, because he's beyond anything we have. If God did not want to know, he didn't want you to know him, you could never know him. You could never know God unless he wanted you to know him. I mean, why does he want us to know him? Why? Why is Paul's prayer that we would grow in our knowledge of him? In Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians, all of his prayers are about growing in the knowledge of God. And we can only know God because he wants us to know him. So when we start to want to know him and seek after him and persevere and train our minds and discipline ourselves, we can know that for sure God will reveal himself to us. Not because we do something to make him, but because he, from the beginning of time and before, he wanted us to know him. I could cry sometimes when I think about that. That's why we're here. Yeah, exactly. This is worship. This is you saying, I can't believe that you would want me to know you. But since you do, I want to know you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole earth is full of his glory. The, The angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and someday God will reveal himself to the whole world. And he will be awesome and splendor and majestic. But we don't have to wait till then. How wonderful is that? We don't have to wait till then. Why not? Because he's already revealed himself himself through Jesus and to us. And to us. So now if that's true, how can we know him better? By reading passages like this. Yeah. Yeah, by doing that. And, and, but not just reading them, because I think I said a little while ago, you can just read it and it can mean nothing. It can wash over you, and especially when you've read them lots of times. So what do you have to do with this? Have you told us? <laughs> well, what we have to do is we have to take this and make that real for me. I have to make these verses real for me. 
I have to look at them and say, okay, what did Isaiah see that I haven't seen? What did he see that he's showing me? What does God want me to see? And then I have to pray, okay, God, I, I don't know you like this, but I want to know you like this. And I have to say, I will seek after you. You know, Psalm 42, I think it's David, he says, um, earnestly I seek you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I thirst for you. I thirst for you, for the living God. And when you go through scripture, all of the people you know sought after God. Mm -hmm. Moses, Job, Isaiah, Hezekiah, Josiah after him, Peter, Paul, Mary, what are the others through the New Testament? Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Barnabas. And then you come out of the Bible and you go into Hudson Taylor and George, Miller, uh, George Muller and George Whitfield and Andrew Murray and A.W. Tozer and Martin Lloyd-Jones and Helen Roosevere and David Wilkerson and Amy Carmichael. These were just names that came off the top of my head. Elizabeth Elliot, Reese Howes, Gladys Aylward. All these people ran hard after God because they saw God. They saw him and they wanted more of him. They wanted more of him. And, and the list goes on and on and on and on. You could go down. I, I mean, you could think of 20 names of people that you've read about who ran hard after God. And they instituted revival in their days. That's what they did. So you and I running hard after God individually does an amazing work in us. Collectively, oh my goodness, it opens up the door of heaven and God sends his spirit. Now, the question is, is that what we want? Is that what you want, really? Is that what you want? Because God will do it. If we want him, and we cry out for him, and we d decide to do that, and commit our way to him, and decide that we will do anything to bring that about, then you can be sure that God will show up. Mm. So the only question is, do we want it? The danger is to rest on your laurels. Of course. That's yeah. The danger. Yeah. Mm. There's no standing still in the Christian life. Standing still is going backwards. I've been struggling this last couple of weeks with what you said about when we try and try and try, and actually God is saying, yeah. don't try anymore, just let me be yeah, yeah. through you. Mm. And I think our own nature is, is such a. Yeah. contradiction to what yeah. we really want to be. It I, is. I'm really with the woe is me for I'm brilliant, you know, <laughs> yeah. wretched woman that I am. Yeah. Um, and I think I was trying to say this to God, and in one sense it meant that it looked like I was resting on my laurels, because mm. I thought, well, I'll just be. Mm. I just won't mm. be thinking all mm. the time, what can I do, what can mm. I do? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I found over the last few days, I've talked and had really interesting conversations, more than I would normally with people, and then actually, I found it quite hard to recollect exactly what was said, apart yeah. from knowing that it was a good conversation. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that's also the Lord trying to protect you from having any sense of being yeah. good yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you're really not. Yeah. Um, but it is always this fight against yeah. Because as we grow in the Lord, there's a tendency to think, well, I know that. Yeah. And, and then exactly. you become arrogant yeah. in the Lord. And that's yeah. not what you want, No. Yeah. And not even arrogant, because arrogance one thing, yeah. but you get bored. People get bored, and, and, they, and I see it on people's faces. I see it. And, and, and it's probably on mine too, when I'm sitting listening to someone. You know, and it's fighting that, fighting the boredom, fighting the, yeah, I know that, fighting the kind of, I don't know, the hardness that comes 
And just making yourself keep running hard after God. And that requires effort because we don't naturally do it. <coughs> naturally, we want to stand still because sometimes it's too hard to keep moving forward. But, um, but yeah, that surrender, that's exactly it. It's, it's that letting go and letting God be God. But the, even the letting go requires you to let go. You have to do that. So you have to surrender to yourself. So it's not, uh, it's not, oh, you know, don't worry about it, live your own life, God will do it all. It's not that. It's that I want God more than anything else. And I want him to have more of me. Um, well, I'm trying to think that I want him more than I want me. Mm. And that's, mm. that's always hard, mm. isn't it? Actually, it's quite important to yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But standing still is not, not an option. No. Uh, and I always remember somebody once saying to me, God cannot, even God cannot steer a stationary mm. car. Mm. 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 It is true. Mm. Yeah. You can't. We, can't, we, we have got to allow the spirit to... To move us on, yeah. But that desire, Simon, is moving because that desire is growing all the time. And, and what God is doing is feeding that desire always. So if we let him, he's feeding that desire. So if we put ourselves in the word and we say, okay, Lord, I don't get some of this stuff, but I want... He feeds that desire. And that's almost like a drug because you want it more. And so you, you just find yourself going on. And so you're not actually doing anything. He's doing it in you, but you are moving forward. But and if you don't read the scripture... Oh, yeah. For example, exactly. Happens. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. That's why we have the church that we have. Yeah. Mm. You said it the other day, uh, Anne, that the Christian life is intentional. And I've thought yeah. a lot about that. Mm. And it is choices. Yeah, all it's choice. It's actually choosing. It's yeah. being passive and saying, oh, yeah. I can do it all. And, you know, we saw that we can just sit here and yeah. it's all happening. It's not like that at all. Mm. We have to choose. Yeah, you have to choose. It, it, it definitely. It's just passive. Because no. that's where Yeah, absolutely. And that's where it gets boring. Mm. Because actually we're we're just listening and not doing and not thinking and it's just kind of waving over us and going in one ear and out the other as my mother used to say you know it's just not having any impact mm. <coughs> yeah we have to choose so um all those people that i listed they ran hard after god they wanted more and more and more of god and my question here is so i've written here so now today tonight ask yourself your question is god your treasure is christ your treasure is he the treasure of your life and i've said that a lot of times before and I have to ask myself that all the time. You know, I have to keep asking myself that question. Would I have God and nothing else? Uh, I mean, to a large extent, that happens as you go on in life with the Lord. Um, but, but, you know, the Lord Jesus, it says in Scripture, will come to those who love his appearing, who seek after him. And is that you? As I said, I think I quoted Psalm 42, this one and two. Um, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I long to come to you, the living God. Because um, little by little, the, the professing church is moving away from seeking after God. Little by little, step by step, they are going the way of the world. In some of those ways, they look good, but they're going the ways of the world. And if we don't have revival, that's life and death for some people. So, 
what's our cry then in the church, in, in, the, in the body of Christ? For us, what is the cry? I mean, really seriously, um, if you had one ounce of boredom in your mind tonight, what should be your cry when you go home? What, what would you want to do? Yeah, but but really, if if you heard what I what Isaiah said about God and what we talked about tonight, and it wafted over you, and you thought, I've heard this before, and really, it's a bit boring. Really, this has not Hezekiah. What's the word that that hits you between the eyes? It's repent. You need to repent because you've heard something great about God, and you haven't wanted it, and you haven't hung on to it, and you haven't said, I'll. Just, I want that more than anything. I want to see you like Isaiah saw you. I want to run after you like Isaiah ran after you. I want to be like those people who have gone before me. I want to live my life for you. And if you didn't think that, you need to repent because you're on the wrong road. You're on the wrong road. You may only be on it for five minutes and you may go home and it may be fine, but you were on the wrong road for that five minutes. You were turning away from God. Because how can we hear things about this God and not want more of him? How can that be? So repent, repent, repent. So repentance has to start in the church. It has to start with us. We have to repent of our arrogance and our boredom and our apathy and our just standing still and our, you know, our intractability and our, our thinking that that it's okay, and, you know, I need a holiday, I need a bit of time off, I'm, you know, thank goodness it's Christmas, we won't have Desiring Truth for a few weeks, you know. It's, you have to repent of that. I have to repent of that. And that's, and we have to ask a second thing, you have to repent, and then what do you have to do? I mean, really, do you believe that we need revival in this? So if you believe it, then this is what we have to do. We have to repent of all the stuff that we have allowed to build up in our life and in our minds that has kept us from running hard after God. We have to repent of that. And then what? Can we do a Daniel repentance? <laughs> yeah. We do. Yeah. Because it's, you know, and if you did a straw poll here, you would find nobody thinks just the way you just No, no, I know that, Eve, Sorry. but no. Because I can sit here with no expression of what's going on inside. I know. Thank you. you I know. Desperate for this. Yeah, I know. I know. But think about taking this out then. T- think about taking this back. How are you going to think about the people that you're mixing with in other church churches, in fellowships, where you know that that's not happening, they're not in the Word of God, because no one's put them in there. You know, I thank God all of the time. I didn't know, I wouldn't have found my way to this sort of study in the Word if someone hadn't come alongside me and put me there. It just wouldn't have happened. It's not normal, natural. People don't do that. It's that someone, God put someone in my life, He put lots of someones in my life that kept bringing me to the Word of God. And that was His doing and their doing. It was because people took the responsibility to disciple me. I mean, thank God for it. Because... You know, and that's what we have to do. We have to disciple other people. But before we do that, we've got to repent. And then what have we got to do? What's the next thing? If you repent and turn around and you start towards God, what are you going to ask God for? You're going to ask him to make Jesus Christ so big in your mind, in your vision, to make himself so huge that you, haven't got, you can't see anything else because he's so huge. 
We live in a, in a world where God's been made so small. He's so small that people don't see him. If he, can you imagine if God showed up? Siren Sister Marketplace on Sunday morning and he looked like this. Can you imagine? People would be flat on their face. Freezing to death in the rain and the wet. They would be flat on their faces. We have to, in our own minds, he has to be big. So we have to ask God, because that won't just happen. We have to ask God to help us to do that, to make him large in our minds, in our vision, in our thinking. And then when he's there, to say, God, help me to surrender everything, to, to give you my will and to give you everything. Stop me going off all over the place and getting distracted and deciding this for myself and that for myself. God wants every part of us. So we have to ask him, I don't know how to do that. I think I've done it and then I find there's that stuff going on. So how do I do it? Draw me closer. So we're going to repent. We're going to surrender. We're going to ask God to help us do all of those things. We're going to really lay down our soul, our life. Also, because I was just thinking, you know, get together with other oh, people from mm. your place <coughs> that you're concerned mm. about. Mm. And really pray with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. <coughs> definitely. And commit, commit to this. Commit to do it every day. You know, this you're gonna forget this in two days' time. You're gonna be Christmas shopping, it won't be on your mind. So it's it's the commitment. Somehow you're gonna write it in a calendar on a diary. I, I'm going to do this every day. I'm gonna commit my way to you. Mm. <coughs> and if you don't commit to that, it won't happen. It won't happen. Okay, I think I didn't say at the beginning, but um, you know, we've, uh, there are four words that uh, I think. Um, well, we've already started these things, but I have to say that they came to me in kind of uh, an order um, for desiring truth next year, and that is evangelism, discipleship, um, mission, and prayer. And you can change the order because it's they're not in importance. It's just what we're going to do next year: evangelism discipleship, mission, and prayer. And I realized when I, when I wrote those down in my little black book, I thought I had some new, wonderful way of doing ministry, I realized that's like standard across scripture. There's no other way. That's just the way it is. That's what we have to do as a church. We have to evangelize. We have to disciple. We have to pray. And we have to go on mission. We have to go on mission, i.e. we have to go out and encourage other believers and then out into the unbelieving world. That's what we're going to do next year. We're going to do more and more and more of that, all of it. I hope we can do it in a place with indoor loos, so if you could spare a time to pray over Christmas, that we could get a building that will hold more people and that, you know, the amenities are more amenable, um, that would be good. But we're going to do it wherever we are. And I really would ask you to commit your way with us to this, because I think it will be phenomenal if we pray for this and, and really seek after God for this. Mm. I mean, who knows what he could do? Well, mm. who knows what he would do? Um, so, yeah. Father, thank you. Thank you that um, your word is amazing. Thank you that you are amazing, Lord. Thank you that I, we can't... We can't really begin to understand how great you are, but that you are showing yourself to us. It's just so wonderful, Lord, and wonderful that you want to be known, and you want to be known by people like us. 
So I pray, Lord God, for perseverance. I pray for that commitment on my part and on everybody's mm -hmm. part, Lord, here, that we would commit our way to you, that you would give us the desire of our hearts. That's what you say, mm -hmm. that you, if we commit our way to you, you give us the desires of our heart. Lord, that's what we want. And, and I, my desire is to go hard after you, Lord God, to run after you because I believe that you will do great and mighty things through people like us as we commit our way to you. So, Father, I thank you for this, um, this short look at Hezekiah and his life. I thank you that what he did, I thank you for the legacy that he passed down. I thank you, Lord, that you're giving us the opportunity to, to leave a legacy. I pray, Father, that you would show us how to do it and that you would really help us to make you, to see you as you really are, Lord God, to see you high and lifted up as Isaiah saw you, and to know, to know, to know, to know that we can come boldly to that throne of grace and find help in our time of need. So Lord, we just thank you for your word, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for even the small desire that we have in us to follow you. And um, yeah, in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 So I hope to see you next week, um, and on the 18th, not next week, sorry, nothing next week, yeah, the week after. <laughs>